alike would agree that for various reasons our culture has greatly over-commercialized the two major Christian holidays, Easter and Christmas. And that's not good. Uh, Maybe the only thing worse than that is the fact that when people in the public eye, no doubt trying to do the right thing, correctly object to that over-commercialization of the holidays, especially Easter, they still fuzz it up. I, I say this a lot at Christmas time. At Christmas time, if somebody in the public eye wants to kind of overreact to all of the money we spend on each other at Christmas, they'll say something, trying to do the right thing. Chris, they'll say, Santa can be fun. Giving and, and getting gifts is a lot of fun. But let's not forget the real meaning of Christmas. And then they take a deep breath and they'll say, peace on earth. Or let's not forget the real meaning of Christmas. Love your fellow man. Now, I hate to be a Grinch. I'm just telling you. I don't like it. But as much as I'm for world peace, and as much as I'm for loving our fellow human beings, um, those wonderful sentiments are not the real, real meaning of Christmas. The real, real meaning of Christmas is the baby in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. Same thing with Easter. You hear people trying to do the right thing in the public eye saying, hey, you know, the Easter bunny and Easter baskets and Easter egg hunts can be a lot of fun, but let's never forget the real meaning of Easter, which is even the coldest winters followed by the warmth of spring, or even uh, every pitch dark night don't ever forget, is is followed by a brand new day. Uh, Those are wonderful sentiments, and they had the advantage of being the truth, but they're not the real, real meaning of Easter. The real, real meaning of Easter is after his death on Good Friday as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ was resurrected I mean, you can't reproduce this in a laboratory, okay? Literal bodily supernatural resurrection from the dead on the first Easter Sunday. That's the real, real meaning of Easter. And this morning, I want us to think about that uh, as we survey a, a passage that's called the resurrection chapter in the New Testament, thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. But first, let's uh, pray for teachability to God's word. Let's pray for those who serve and protect us. Uh, We're so proud to have uh, uh, Matt Sanford and David Moore, active military, uh, with us this morning and their families as usual. And they're in this collage among with other people that we know and uh, love. Let's pray for our troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, in addition to praying we'll all be teachable, uh, Michael, I want you to pray especially the teacher We'll have a pure heart and a clear head this morning. Very, very important, okay? So let's pray, and uh, Mike Palovic, pray in that direction for us, would you? Thank you, Mike. Just to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, I've got three interesting Easter cartoons. Uh, Mom's explaining the term Easter to her daughter, and she says they're New Yorkers. Uh, In New York, we celebrate Easter. In California, they celebrate Wester. 
And I like this one. This is mom talking to the kids, and they've got their Easter baskets uh, ready for the Easter egg hunt. And she says, uh, this year, instead of Easter eggs, you'll be hunting for my sunglasses, checkbook, and green bracelet grandma gave me. <laughs> and then finally, you know, we put all the sugary stuff in Easter baskets. Uh, and this is uh, captioned, the Easter Bunny plans to simplify things this year. He just put a 10-pound bag of sugar <laughs> in the Easter basket just so you can uh, go a little faster. Uh, first... Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter. It is a long chapter. It's 58 verses. Don't worry, we're not going to exegete all 58 verses this morning. But I want you to see that those 58 verses break down into five units and work our way through those units with an emphasis on the first one, the certain reality of the literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the last one, the certain reality of believers' resurrection because of the certain reality of the resurrection of Christ. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at first. And let's read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the first 11 verses here are emphasizing the certain reality of the resurrection of Christ, and we'll focus on verses 1 through 6. Now allow me to remind you, brethren, as I end this long epistle about the gospel which I preached to you when I first got to Corinth several years before that, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word, to the gospel I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for here it is, for I delivered to you as of first importance when I first arrived in Corinth, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And secondly, he was raised on the third day. That's the real, real meaning of Easter, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to multiple people, multiple places, multiple times. Cephas to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brethren, fellow believers at once, most of whom are still alive. You can talk to them, but some have fallen asleep. Uh, I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, Paul, the New Testament, is defining, Melvin, the gospel. And I always like to say we use the word gospel quite often as an adjective today. We've got gospel bookstores, gospel jamborees, uh, gospel napkins, uh, gospel everything. And we use gospel as uh, an adjective. But Paul, very precisely, and as you know, gospel is not an adjective, it's a noun, right? Uh, he specifically says the gospel, and by the way, the word gospel in the original language of the New Testament is euangelion, which is, we get the word evangelical from that. So when you hear about an evangelical Christian, that's a Christian uh, amongst the 2.3 billion of us that claim the title of Christian at some level. Evangelical Christians see correctly that the core message of the Bible, regardless of our denominational preferences, is the fact that Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And he is the basis of eternal life for all who believe in him. So that's the gospel. It has two parts. Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins so we don't have to die in our sins. And the scriptures predicted that. And when they buried his body, Myrna, it was room temperature. I mean, he was a corpse. He was dead 
Graveyard dead, as they sometimes say. Christ died for our sins. Secondly, he was raised. LBSR is an acronym for literal bodily supernatural resurrection. That's the kind of resurrection. We're not talking about a spiritual resurrection where his thoughts continue to enlighten people. We're not saying that maybe they had a hallucination, thought they saw Jesus. We mean physically, literally, supernaturally. You can't do it in a laboratory. It's a miracle. And the scriptures foretold that. The Old Testament prophets predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. And he appeared in his resurrection body, transformed to the apostles and many others. Uh, You look at the TBF logo. And the reason we've got behind the letters TBF across in an arrow is to represent the death and the resurrection of Christ. All right. Um, and I, I like what I heard uh, a Baptist preacher say once, because Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We don't have to die in our sins. If this is God, and this is me and you, and this is our sin, we got a problem, because at our worst, we're very selfish, and we don't just break God's standards, we break our own standards under pressure, and if we think it's important enough to us. And God loves us, but our sin gets between God and ourselves. But God in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth with a perfectly righteous life, obeyed the law for us, died on the cross and paid for our sins and came back alive again. And so everyone who trusts in him can receive the gift of eternal life without God compromising his character. As Paul says in Romans because Christ actually paid the debt, God can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Now, it's very important for me to emphasize Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, as much as I love it, does not have an exclusive franchise on the gospel, and neither does any other church or denomination or even parachurch groups. Uh, When God looks at his church, this is uh, the way he sees it with a lot of other ovals around it. Uh, it starts with the cross and the resurrection. Where do I, why do I think that's so important? Why would I dare say that's the gospel? We just read it, right? So let me remind you what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is. And guess what? Historically, Assemblies of God people believe in the gospel. I have a lot of differences with most Assembly of God on a lot of stuff, but at their essence, they're embracing the same Christ I am. Historically, Methodists have been very strong on the gospel. Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists, Church of the Nazarene, Presbyterian, Lutheran, lots of other groups. And there is TBF, Tankwood Bible Fellowship. So Paul is just saying that the gospel has two parts, the vicarious death to pay our sin debt and his literal resurrection. And as I'm going to say more than once today, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected Savior is the only one who can. Okay, Now let's look at verses, or the second unit. We've talked about the certain reality of Christ. Let's look at the negative consequences, or think about the negative consequences of rejecting, disbelieving, denying the resurrection of Christ. That's described in verses 12 through 19. Let's read verses 12 through 14 to start. He says, Now... If Christ is preached as resurrected, as a fact, by eyewitnesses that flat know it happened, 
that he's been raised from the dead. How do some among you at Corinth Bible Fellowship, that's the name of that church, you know, that he's writing to Corinth Bible Fellowship. How do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Uh, I don't think the average card-carrying, or in our case, non-card-carrying church member is denying the resurrection. I think the Corinthian Christians are trying to be inclusive, trying to impress their world culture by becoming as worldly as possible without totally uh, punting away the program. And they're being inclusive and allowing philosophers and other VIPs from the secular community to come in and fill the pulpit occasionally. And as we know, the ancient Greeks uh, came up with a lot of great philosophical conclusions using deductive reasoning. They're the champions of deductive reasoning. But they really didn't like a bodily resurrection. And that was the thing that, uh, that was the big sticking point when Paul hit Athens. He goes to Mars Hill where all the philosophers hang out, and they really kind of liked what he had to say until he mentioned the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they couldn't handle that. That was the one thing they would not consider. They'd consider anything else. So my take on this reference to why are some among you, uh, why are some among you on the fill the pulpit committee allowing some of these heretics, these non-believing heretics, to come in and doubt the resurrection from a pulpit, as it were? But there is debate at some level at Corinth Bible Fellowship about the reality of the resurrection, and there shouldn't be a debate amongst Christians about that. It just flat happened. And then Paul says, think about some of the negative implications, uh, consequences of rejecting this. Uh, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, just generally, just existentially can't happen, then not even Christ has been raised. So, Bobby, that means your Savior is still, you know, decaying. His body's decaying somewhere. He's done. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What are they preaching about Christ? Jenny, what did he tell you in verses 3 and 4? What they're preaching about Christ is that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised. He was resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to a lot of people, many of whom are still alive. When Paul writes this, you can talk to them. So he's saying, look, you're, you're permitting uh, in your discourse at church the possibility the resurrection's impossible, and that's an impossible thing for Christians to affirm. Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ is still dead. And if Christ hasn't been raised, he's still dead. Then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is in vain. There's a lot of nonsense said from a lot of major Christian pulpits today about the power of faith. If you believe something uh, enough, it's going to happen. Look, I believed I was going to be a male model and an NBA superstar. I'm still waiting, but I still believe it. You know, faith is only as good as its object. And we're not saved by our faith. We're saved through faith. Faith is the empty hands that receives the merit of the crucified, risen Savior. Faith is the vehicle, but the Savior is the, the agent. The object of our faith is what counts. And faith only as good as its object. And Paul's saying... Since the gospel message, the only gospel message, is Christ died for your sins and rose again, if you're thinking maybe the resurrection is impossible, you've got no gospel. No resurrection of Christ means no salvation in Jesus Christ. He's a dead prophet, and he can't get you from Oklahoma, or in this case from Corinth in uh, Achaia, Greece, uh, to heaven. But 
if the literal bodily supernatural resurrection is true, and Paul had seen the risen Christ, so he knew it, and Paul had the advantage of writing in 56 A.D. to the Corinthians when there were still a lot of eyewitnesses alive you could talk to, the reality of the literal bodily resurrection means there's no salvation in anyone but Christ. That's how important this is. Uh, Paul's just slam-dunking those who would deny it. You know, uh, this is a nice picture of the garden tomb just outside the, uh, the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, many of us had the privilege of visiting that. I've been there three different times. Uh, that's a picture from our 2006 trip. That's uh, uh, Clay, the husband of the librarian, uh, Cole, Clay Cole, yeah. Um, there's Bonnie Aldridge and there's some other people. Um, I always love this picture. There's Ron taking a picture of Julie going into the tomb. There's Jonathan, my younger son, taking a picture of my older son and his wife, Allison. That's at the empty tomb. It's still empty. And there's Candace. Candace is some of you know. Candace is pregnant with twins again. You know that Allison? Yeah, yeah. They go two at a time. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, two years ago, my younger younger son's wife had twins, and now she's pregnant with twins and due in May. And we're praying that she gets as close to May as possible. And then here's a picture of uh, there's Tom Robertson. Yeah, you know him. Yeah, there's my first wife, Debbie. There's Jean. Back of Jean's head. It's a good shot of your back of your head. That hasn't changed a bit, Jean. Uh, that's great. There's Bonnie. I think that's Kathy. Yeah. So, you know, Paul's just saying this flat happened, and I know it blows people's categories, but it is what it is. Drop down to verse 17. Let me go back there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. As, uh, I haven't used this analogy in a long time, but for years, Jack Smith, who's much braver and, and smarter and uh, better able to tie knots than I am, was trying to get me to go to the Wichita Mountains and, and rappel off a, a mountain with him, and I have no desire to do that. But the analogy I heard somebody else use, and I used it for a long time, you know, uh, if you go with Jack, he's going to test the, the rope and it's going to be good for 500 pounds or 5,000 pounds, a lot more than you you weigh, so it's not going to break. And he's going to tie it and secure it properly. And as long as you hold onto the rope, you're fine. You're trusting in that rope, right, Lisa, to hold you up so you can slowly descend and not fall at 9.8 meters, you know, toward the center of the earth and, and hurt yourself. But, uh, you know, if somebody had been rock climbing like that, Use not test line of 500 pounds, 5,000 pounds. What do you use, Jack? 5,000. That's what I want. I don't want to get anywhere close to the, to the line on that one. But if, if somebody uh, who's done that a couple of times decided to use kite string because they were watching the shark tank, and on shark tank, this guy had come up with a, a kite string that could hold up 5,000 pounds, but it really can't. And this guy bought it. At, it's, it's on sale, too. He bought it. And then... When he first leans against that kite string, he's putting his faith in the kite string, Kelly. What's going to happen to the guy? He's going to get seriously hurt or, or killed because, not because he didn't have any faith. He had perfect faith, didn't he? He's, the object of his faith wasn't sufficient, wasn't any good. So Paul's saying, hey, 
if Christ, who's the object of our saving faith, hasn't been raised, if he's still dead, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died between uh, the time they first heard the gospel and now when Paul's writing this letter, they'd perish. They're gone. If we've hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because we're believing nonsense, right? Now, by the way, go back to verse 14 real quick. Notice he says, if, Paul's, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, what we're saying about Christ isn't true, it's worthless, and your faith is worthless. Now, notice he uses the word vain there. That same word in the original is found in verse 2. Did you notice that? It says, let me remind you of the gospel. You know, the gospel I preached and we believe and we hold on to, by which you're saved, unless you believed in vain. And some people will preach that. Well, some people don't believe enough, you know. How much do you have to believe to be saved? How much faith do you need to be saved? All the faith you've got. And depending on where you are, it may be that big. Hopefully over time it gets bigger. You're believing in vain if the object of your faith isn't sufficient to save you. And if Jesus is dead, wasn't resurrected, then you're believing in him in vain because he wasn't resurrected. That's what that means. Let's let context tell us what things mean instead of pre-deciding with our theology and reading that into the passages. It's not a great way to go. Uh, okay, we've seen the certain reality of the resurrection in verses 1 through 11. We've seen the negative consequences of denying it. Let's think about the positive consequences of resting, receiving, believing in the resurrection of Christ. Let's look at verses 20 through 26. He says, But now, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead over and out, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man, the God-man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. We're going to talk about that in verses 51 through 58. It's called the rapture. We're talking about it in great detail on Wednesday nights for the next several weeks. And then at the end of the end times comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all other rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Uh, funeral homes are going to go out of business in, in the end times, at the end of the end times. There'll be no more death. Uh, that's an awesome passage. Now, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and this means the whole thing works. The whole program works. It all fits together. Somebody said, you know, change only as strong as its weakest link. Did somebody say that, or did I just invent that? Yeah, I think it's out there somewhere. He's saying, you know, there is no weak link in the plan. The plan is God so loved the world, he gave his son to do everything necessary to get Aubrey McPherson to heaven. Everything necessary, all the work necessary to get any of us from earth to heaven when we die has been done for us by Jesus Christ. That's different than all the world religions. I've had the privilege of teaching survey world religions at a university level several times, and I can tell you all the other world religions, how they define God, heaven, uh, the punishment phase, sin, or problems, whatever they're dealing with, 
uh, all have us reaching up, trying to cling to God or grab God or do something to impress God or get his attention, however they define all those things. It's only Christianity that said God loved, God sends his son, his son does the work, his son transcends our categories by what he did, including his resurrection, and through faith in him, he'll give us salvation as a gift. The word grace means, I, I like the acronym, uh, I should have been active military. I was only ROTC uh, one year. We had no terrorist attacks that year, so you're welcome on that. But I never served active military like my, my friend David back there. But I like acronyms. I know the military is full of acronyms. But grace, G-R-A-C-E, Matt, God's riches at Christ's expense. The word grace in the Bible means unmerited favor, Tanner. It's favor or blessing you can't earn, you don't deserve, you can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. And all that is based not on God just overlooking our sins, but him paying the debt so he can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. And this is an incredible plan. I often say, people, uh, you need to read the way the Bible ends. Redina, you need to read the ending of the Bible. Revelation twenty-one twenty-two talks about when God gets complete with his purposes for permitting the status quo, and status quo is a Latin word that means the mess we's in, okay? When his purpose for history is concluded, it shows you where you're going to be, Amber, as a believer. And it is awesome. It's incredible. It's a cheer up a little bit, you know? Uh, we've got a lot to look forward to. Okay, we've looked at the certain reality, the negative consequences, the positive consequences. Let's think about the character of the believer's future resurrection body as revealed through the resurrection of Christ. Verses 35 through 50 go into some detail. Today, I just want to look at a couple of those verses. Look at verse 42, talking about the character of believer's future resurrection bodies. Uh, Death in the Bible is not extinction of consciousness or anything else. It's always separation. Spiritual death is our relational separation from God and is our fault, okay? Uh, physical death is the separation of your consciousness from your body. Your soul and your spirit leave your body at physical death. Uh, and right now, uh, everybody who's been in, in the church, in the capital C uh, universal church, who have passed on... Uh, They've left their bodies and their souls and spirits are with the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're going to get a body in the future, and we're going to get a body in the future. But It'll be like this one, but it will be different. It'll be exactly like this one, only different. And he talks about some of that in this passage. Look at verse 42. He says, um, he's talking about the differences and the change of our physical body that we've got now, which will bury and decay, and God using that raw material to produce something wholly different, a resurrection body. Talking about that in the context. And he says, uh, and so, so or thus is the resurrection body. It's sown a perishable body. Let me say that again. So is our resurrection body. It's sown a perishable body. A person dies if they're in Christ. Their consciousness goes to be with the Lord. We bury them. Maybe they're cremated. Maybe they get blown up in an explosion or something. But all those atoms don't go away. Matter can't be created nor destroyed, right, in the present status quo we're in. Uh, it's sown a perishable body, but it will be raised when we're resurrected. For church age believers, that is 
Michael knows happens in connection with the rapture, as Paul's going to talk about later in his passage. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. We, we go from, a to, from one thing to a totally different thing. But God is pleased to use whatever is left of your physical body, those atoms, and start with that as raw material to create a resurrection body. And it's going to be like the one Jesus had. And think about it. When Christ, just before he dies on Good Friday, he tells the terrorist on the cross who believes. The King James translated that thief on the cross. But you guys know the Romans didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified terrorists, people they thought were in their way were going to be problems for them. We'd call them insurgents or terrorists today. Uh, Jesus tells the terrorist on the cross who believes. And this guy was a bad guy. He was a murderer. He probably broken all Ten Commandments multiple times, sometimes on the same day. And he's, what does he say to Jesus? How does he receive eternal life? What did he join? What did he quit? What did he sign? Did he walk an aisle? I don't think so. Not really in a position to do that. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. You just have to have childlike faith and sufficiency of the crucified risen Savior to do it. Jesus, remember when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you, your consciousness will be with me in paradise. So when Jesus dies physically, his consciousness doesn't go to sleep. It doesn't, it's not extinguished. It separates from his body and also the terrorists who believe. Leaves his body, goes to a place called paradise, right? Three days later on, on Easter Sunday, what happens to Jesus? He's resurrected. Lindley, what does that mean? That means his consciousness, his soul and spirit, goes back into his physical body, which hadn't decayed very much. It had only been there for a couple of days. And I'm not going to tell you the Joseph of Arimathea joke this year. First year in 27 years, I haven't told that joke. If you want to know after, ask me, Tanner. It's really pretty funny, but they've all heard it 27 times, and they don't even nod anymore, so I'm not going to tell you more. But, uh, yeah, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? So the consciousness leaves, goes to paradise. On Easter Sunday, the consciousness of Jesus goes back in that body, and God the Father who resurrects Jesus is passive for him. He's trusting the first person to do it to the second person. His God uses that physical raw material, all that organic uh, chemistry that his body was, and turns it into a body that was similar to the human eye, but it's transcendent, it's spiritual. It can uh, survive the rigors of outer space and everything else. And that's what he's saying here. So let's talk about the resurrection body. It's sown a perishable body when you bury it, but it's going to be raised when God raises it, starting with those raw materials. And I know that uh, whomever, let's say Peter, James, and John, okay, they've been dead for 2,000 years, okay? For them, their death was absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, but their bodies are somewhere, and not in real good shape 2,000 years later. But God's going to use those atoms and create a whole new paradigm, an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's dead. It's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's dead. It's going to be raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised. It will be raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Now go over to verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, bottom line on the resurrection body issue, that flesh and blood, this physical body as we know it now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to have a body that's going to live forever. And the cool thing about this body is you can eat all you want to and not gain any weight. 
There's no verse on that, but that's my personal theological conclusion. And we'll, you know, you can tell, talk to me later, you know, about it, like about a million years later, and you can say you were right. Uh, I know we're going to eat in heaven because we've got the uh, 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 the dinner that uh, is talked about uh, in connection with the inauguration of the millennium and other things. So, uh, rather than sitting on a cloud playing a harp and getting bored. Uh, Think of all the cool stuff you can do in this fallen world. And to me, as a theologian who very much believes in the depravity of man, it's the only major doctrine of Scripture that's proven every day on the Internet and every newspaper. I believe in that. But I'm amazed at how much good God can get into this messed up universe we've got. I mean, there's a lot of terrible stuff, too. It goes back to evil, rebellion, etc. It's the cosmic fallout of that, the metaphysical after effects of sin, angelic and anthropo- anthropoid and anthropos human beings. But man, think of all the great stuff. Yellowstone National Park, Disneyland, no, uh, Super Bowl, I mean, whatever you like. Uh, Master of Golf Tournament, think of all the great stuff that's in this fallen world. The new heaven, new earth's going to be much greater. Angie's going to be much, 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 much greater. Multiply it by infinity. Uh, but you're going to have to have a resurrection body. So if you're not crazy about your body, I've got good news for you. Uh, whether or not you need uh, help with a surgeon uh, or not, or you opt to do that, um, and I did, and it helped me. Now, uh, you know, I don't like my hairline. I don't like my ears. I don't like the fact I've been wearing glasses since I was 18 months old. I don't like the fact that I only look through this eye when both eyes are open. I could go on and talk about my aches and pains, Shannon, but I'm going to spare you the details. Uh, the older I get, the more I uh, look forward to my resurrection body. Uh, there was a time many years ago when malls were full of people shopping and buying things, and at the end of uh, the mall in Lawton, there was a penny store that was always full of people uh, milling around and buying things. And I, I, it was like 30 years ago, 20, it must have been 25 years ago, uh, we were fairly new here, and I was walking trying to find Debbie and Penny's, and sometimes they would put mirrors on the columns about every 10 yards to the store. And I was walking along trying to find Debbie, and I looked over and I saw this really goofy old guy following me. And I thought, man, this is terrible, you know. And then I realized... It was me. So if anybody needs a new body, it's, it's me. So I, I really, I, I dig that. All right. Let's look at the, the last portion of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're emphasizing the first and the last, the certain reality. What does LBSR mean? A literal bodily supernatural resurrection of Christ. The certain reality of that. And the certain reality of our resurrection, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, a glorious resurrection uh, to his glory. Look at verses 51 and following. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament, new truth in the program of God. We're not all going to sleep. Sleep's a euphemism for the death of believers. There's a generation of believers that will not die, that will be resurrected in place at the rapture event. Right, We will not all sleep, but we're all going to be changed. Or, or we, we can't inherit the kingdom of God, Chatney, with a body like this. We need a, a body that uh, is a resurrection body, a spiritual body. Uh, it's going to happen in a moment, at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, at the beginning of the end times, for the trumpet will sound, the trumpet of God will sound, the dead will be resurrected imperishable. Been coming on Wednesday nights, you know that means that Paul says, Don't worry about the believers that die before you do, because if you're alive when Christ comes back, they're not going to miss the rapture. They're going to get their resurrection bodies first, and then we're going to get resurrected in place. 
And we're all going to be changed. But this perishable physical body must put on the imperishable, like he just described in verses 35 through 50. This mortal must put on immortality. Now, all this is going to happen. This is not just the character, but the timing. Uh, This is kind of our baseline prophecy chart based on the book of Revelation. If you read chapter 1, John's told to write the book. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus interacts with churches. Chapter 4 and 5, a door opens in heaven. John's translated up into heaven, sees the control room before the end time starts on earth. 6 through 18 of Revelation talks about a seven-year period where the Antichrist is doing his thing and kind of of the rebellion of, of human history each reaches its maximum point. Second advent of Christ stops that, leads to the chapter 20,000-year kingdom, and then chapter 21, 22. That, that's that part I want you to read, Amber, about the way the Bible turns out. Now, we're in First Thessalonians on Wednesday night, and we've been kind of morphing the chart like that and saying the prophecy part of uh, First Thess goes from 4.13 to 5.11, 4, 13 through 18 is talking about the rapture of uh, we're going to be caught up, meet the Lord in the air, go back to prepared places, then talks about the tribulation. And so what he's talking about here when he says, hey, let me tell you a mystery. Some of us, a whole generation of Christians won't all sleep, die physically, but we're all going to be changed. It's going to happen at a moment, twinkling in the eye. It's going to happen at the event First Test 4 talks about. We call it the, I'd call it the rapture event. Okay, Keep going. But when this perishable body will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal has been morphed into our resurrection immortal body, then we'll be able to say with finality, death is swallowed up in victory. We're not susceptible to that stuff anymore. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... One thing that Paul does that a lot of us modern preachers don't always do is he always makes prophecy practical. He always says there are implications to this stuff beyond just having a nice complicated diagram people can't follow. Uh, Therefore, since Jesus wins, and if you're a believer in him, you're not just given a get-out-of-hell-free card. You've got all kinds of great stuff coming your way in the future. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast in the faith. Be immovable, even on prom night, even on out-of-town business trips. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain. There's the word vain again. There's a lot of vanity in the uh, resurrection chapter. Sometimes you do the right thing and keep hitting your head against the wall. I mean, as a preacher, sometimes I feel like the guy just standing on the corner, hitting his head over the head with a hammer. And a guy walks up to him and says, why do you do that? And he says, you know, I do that because it feels so good when I stop. And some of you feel like, man, I'm just doing all the stuff, and is it working, and does anybody care? And you wonder, you know, but you can't wonder that if you factor in the reality of the resurrection. So where do we start? We started by saying that I think just about everybody would admit that Easter and Christmas are over-commercialized. And as I uh, conclude, and I'm just beginning to conclude, so don't get too excited, uh, I want to emphasize uh, the real real meaning of Easter, and a central, I would say, the key effect of the real, real meaning of Easter. What's the real, real meaning of Easter? Well, the real, real meaning of Easter is after his death as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world on Good Friday, Jesus Christ 
after his body was room temperature for three days, was resurrected, literal bodily supernatural resurrected from the dead on the first Easter Sunday. That's the real, real meaning of Easter, okay? Um, Not fun with the Easter bunny and Easter baskets and Easter eggs. Now, there are a lot of Christians that are kind of hyper-legalistic, and if it feels good, it must be bad. And so they come up with all this mythology about all these Easter symbols and tries to act like they're all inherently evil. And if you believe that, that's okay. Uh, But to me, I I kind of enjoy... I like jelly beans, okay? I'm sorry, you know? uh, You know, anything that... uh, promotes uh, Walmart to make more jelly beans available at a larger scale for a couple of months, and it can't be all bad, you know? But uh, I would say, the, I mean, you know, uh, Tanner and Allison and, and Derek and Aubrey have to decide how much are we going to push the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus with our little kids. You know, you decide, you make your own choices on that. I wouldn't make Santa Claus or Easter Bunny a huge object of faith. I wouldn't have an altar where you're bowing down to the Easter Bunny or anything like that. But when you're two or three years old, if you tell them the Easter Bunny brought some candy, and I think they'll get over it. Uh, they'll eventually figure out Mickey Mouse isn't real either, you know, without existentially having a crisis about Jesus necessarily. So, um, you know, all things in moderation, including moderation. Uh, it's your call, but that's where I am. And so I, I gave you an extra page uh, in your handout today, I'm not going to read it to you, and I've put something like that in the last couple of years because everybody always goes, isn't the word Easter evil and terrible and stuff? And no, not really. You know, all these conspiracy theories seem to answer all the questions and make all the obvious good guys bad guys, and they almost always fall apart. You just got to look at it. So um, that's my story and sticking to it. And hey, you know what? If, if it's your conviction, we're not going to talk about Santa Claus or sing Jingle Bells or have Easter bunnies or Easter egg hunts at our house. That's cool. I respect your conviction on that. Um, but I, I don't think we're, we're uh, denying the faith if we have a little fun with the Easter Bunny. Now, usually, uh, and I never have sanctioned this, but I guess Phyllis must be in East Te- or West Texas today, but a lot of times Phyllis Davis dresses up like the Easter Bunny and usually interrupts worship to kind of wave with the kids, you know? And I'm always thinking, that's going to send a good message to the first-time visitors. I mean, right. Uh, but I know her heart. I, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I, I kind of like it. Uh, kind of a, I kind of miss it this year. It's not here. So maybe she'll do it twice next year. But uh, none of that's the real meaning of Easter. Not even the seemingly philosophical, after every cold winter comes a warm spring nonsense that people try to sell as the meaning of Easter. The real, real meaning of Easter is something totally different, something completely supernatural, and something absolutely essential to your salvation from sin, and more importantly, to my personal salvation from sin. That's what I'm getting at here. And here's what it is. Christ's literal bodily supernatural resurrection validates the saving power of the death of Christ. A dead Savior can't get anyone from Oklahoma to heaven. The risen one's the only one who can. One plus one equals two. If you want to believe it, it's 3 or 4.7 of the square root of 9. It's a free country, but it equals 2 every time, okay? So the resurrected Christ is the, the way, the truth, and the life, and that's just the way it is. Uh, surveys of Americans consistently show that a majority of Americans believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. 
And the same surveys tell us that um, one of the top three Bible verses of Americans is God helps those who help themselves. Now, there is no such Bible verse, and it's simply not true that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Neither of those concepts that uh, surveys tell us most Americans believe in are true. And both of them are inconsistent with the real, real meaning of Easter. Good people, bad people? The Bible says all have sinned, including Billy Graham, the Pope, and certainly Brad McCoy, and come short of the glory of God. Well, that, but you're kidding. I haven't molested children. I haven't robbed a bank. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Surely I'm better than some guy who does all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, you know, on a relative scale, you are a lot better than the average person like that, and congratulations. That's, that's really impressive. I appreciate that. But I like the analogy of, um, and people say, hey, there's so much difference between people. How can God say we're all kind of in the same boat? Well, ultimately, we are. And although we have the distinctions between us at levels of morality and you know, righteous desires or whatever it is, to the extent a depraved person has that, I, would, I like the analogy of if we took all these people here this morning and put them in the parking lot. In fact, let's put them on that parking lot. Let's put them in the north parking lot. We give them all a tennis ball. I'm a golfer. Let's a golf ball. I, I tell you, in honor of Phil, baseballs, major league baseballs. My man Phil Klein has shipped us a huge box of. If he signed them, we wouldn't throw them. So this just empty baseballs, okay? Major league baseballs, okay? So Lindley has a connection with a major league baseball pitcher, you know. Right? You know him, right? Okay, just so everybody know. So we give everybody a baseball. And so, did, are you following me? We're in the north parking lot. Everybody. Well, I don't play baseball. It doesn't matter. Just everybody's in the parking lot. We all give everybody one baseball, okay? And I say, okay, i got a compass here on my phone, and I do. True north is that way, okay? Here's what I want you to do. Throw your baseball, hit the north pole. Is anybody going to hit the north pole with a baseball? Chatney, please say no. You can't throw it that far. Are we all going to throw it the same distance? No. Somebody like... Andrew, Andrew probably thought it further than anybody. Tommy would have before surgery, okay? But you're, you're on the DL for this. In fact, you can just be the judge. You can tell us if anybody hits the North Pole, Tommy, okay? Okay, so Andrew probably thought the farthest. Tabor would be up there. Michael, you still have a pretty good arm from your baseball days. You know, we'd all throw the baseballs different distances, but we'd all be thousands of miles short of the target. That's what the Bible means. It says we've all sinned. That doesn't mean we're all as bad as everybody else. There's a lot of people a lot worse than anybody in this room, I'm sure. There's probably a lot of people a lot better than anybody in this room, including me, if you're going to talk about that. But we're all thousands of miles short, millions of miles short of the target, which is God's perfection. So that whole bromide is just uh, sounds good, but it's just not true. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, not when it comes to salvation. Salvation, according to the Bible, is... For by grace, unmerited favor, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't unearn it, you can't undeserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith, not by faith, but through faith. And who's the object of our faith? What's the gospel say? The Christ who died for us and rose again. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. You've got nothing to brag about. Um, that's a verse cited a lot. I like Romans 4, 5, which seemingly very few people cite. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
his faith, the ungodly person's faith, is reckoned as righteousness. And then, of course, we've got John 3.16, radically mind-blowing, paradigm-busting idea, totally different than all the world religions. God the Father as the author of the plan of salvation, and he's not the same person as God the Son, who's the active agent of salvation, nor the Holy Spirit, who's the activating agent of salvation. God the Father as the author of the plan of salvation, love the world full of sinful, self-centered people, not all as bad as everybody, but we're all far short of what we could or should be, so much that he gave his son, second person of the Trinity, who takes on humanity without ceasing to be deity. He's the God-man Savior. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, I've got to be lifted up. So what did Jesus do when he's lifted up? He died to pay your moral debt you owe to God and my debt I owe to God because of my sin, right? God the Father loved the world so much he gave his son to pay that sin debt for Rodina and for Harmony and for Ron and for Maxine and for Jeff and for Brad that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's tease that out. The original Greek text doesn't say whosoever You've got a present active participle there, an articular present active participle, and it should be translated that all of the ones who believe in him, not whosoever, that's King James 1611 English stuff, that all, 100% of those who believe in him shall not future tense perish, go to the lake of fire, which is where everybody ends up after the great white throne who are not connected with God through Christ, We're not going to have to face that at all, but has, that's present tense. Have you seen that? Shall not future tense perish is not physical death, but like a fire, but has present tense eternal life. Think about it. How many of your sins were future when Christ died? All of them. He died in 33 AD. How many are forgiven when you trust him as Savior? All the ones he died for, which is all of them. Okay. Think of it this way. Everyone who believes in him has eternal life. If you ever have eternal life, can you lose it? If you're, if God says you have eternal life and you can lose it, you didn't have eternal life. You had spiritual life until you sinned bad enough to lose it or drop it or punt it or wherever you put it. You know, if you lost it, go go get it. You know, uh, it's not losable. It's we're saved by God's grace, and as Jesus said. Uh, All who come to me will not perish because they're in my hand. My Father, who could protect them from anyone who'd take them, they're in his hand. So we've got a double fist of security. And then Paul says stuff like the Holy Spirit. The third person seals us. That's the Holy Spirit putting superglue on the whole thing. Uh, God gets all the credit for salvation because he does all the work. So this morning, on Easter Sunday 2015, we're emphasizing the real, real meaning of Easter which is after his death on Good Friday, Jesus Christ was resurrected on the first Easter Sunday morning. And for you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, today could be the day of your salvation. Uh, you Just like the thief on the cross, all the faith you've got, baby. Uh, Lord, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I'm not perfect. I can't even keep my own standards half the time, much less yours. I can't fix it, and I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to stop coming to church once a a year or once a decade to try to make brownie points with you because nothing's going to help save me. I can't save myself. What what could the thief on the cross do, meritorious? Nothing, which made him a perfect vehicle candidate for salvation, right? Okay? 
because he had no delusions that he could be good enough to earn it. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm totally unable to fix it or save myself, but I believe Jesus can, and I want him to. I actually believe he died in my place as my substitute, and he rose again from the, from the dead. Richard Dawkins doesn't like that because he can't re- reproduce it in a laboratory, and that's totally beside the point. That's, that's the point. This is a supernatural, unique thing that you can't quantify in that way. It must be received through faith, but it really happened. So that would be our invitation. Let me take the pressure off. There's going to be no altar call. You don't have to walk the aisle. We're not going to play just as I am 17 times to get the psychological juices loosened up. You don't have to sign anything, join anything. But you can become a member of the capital C Church of Jesus Christ through faith alone in Christ alone. We'd invite you to trust Jesus Christ this morning. For the rest of us, I would just say, as I always say on Easter, uh, to me, you know, every day we've got to live in the, in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. We've got to live every day, especially face our challenges against the background of that empty tomb. That's about the only way I do it when I have a, a big one hit me. But, uh, you know, the reason the early Christians met on Sunday, they had a, these were all Jewish people. They met on Saturday for worship. And then they realized that Jesus is our Sabbath. It was all about Jesus. We rest in him. We have rest in him 24-7. And they radically started meeting not on Sabbath. They started meeting on Sunday. Why did they meet on Sunday? Day of the resurrection, right? So let's live our lives in light of the reality of the resurrection. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and haven't stuttered. We thank you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find the core of your purpose and plan for us as individuals. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not... um, trusted in the risen Savior for salvation. I pray your Holy Spirit would convict of sin. They got it. Righteousness, they need it. Judgment, it's coming. Convince them of their total inability to contribute to any kind of bridge or ladder to heaven and open their hearts to receive and rest in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen as their Savior. Uh, For most of us, many of us this morning, we've, we've embraced Christ as Savior by your grace. Help us to just... Recharge our batteries on this Easter Sunday. Help us to realize that we can live every, and we should live every day in light of the reality of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.